Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to On That Age Well. This week, I'm joined by Mark Tumble who has written The Private Life of Charles I, whom we are going to discuss today. And as always, I try to get to know the guests a little bit. So how, what was it about Charles I that got me so invested in him? Uh, well, it um, goes back quite some time, I'll have to say. But when I was 10 years old, um, we, we went to a castle in North Yorkshire in England called Helmsley Castle. Uh, and that is steeped in Civil War history. And um, unbeknown to me at that time, I must add. And in the gift shop, there were a small pack of cards. Uh, Each card featured a monarch um, of England from the conquest uh, right up to Elizabeth II. And on the back of each card, it had a little bit of detail about their reigns. Um, uh, I bought that. I've always loved history. Um, Bought that from the gift shop. And just flicking through the different monarchs, a bit like a royal lineup. Um, as soon as I got to that card about Charles I, um, Will Blame Van Dyke, the portrait of Charles I was just amazing. You know, it was the, the colours, the costumes, the pose, how regal it was. And then on the back, um, finding out that he'd been executed. It was at that moment when I thought, hang on, this very image of a king. Spoiler, whoa, whoa, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? And and mm. from that day on, it's been a passion that uh that I, I've I've been fascinated with. So let's begin with the early life of Charles I because he grew up in Scotland his first few years and and, and he was of course the son of James the First and took over after Elizabeth I had died. So he seems like quite a shy kid, at least in his early years. So let's talk about his upbringing and Scotland and him finally moving to England. Because, it, again, it doesn't seem that he was supposed to be king. It was his brother who later would die, as, die and then it would be Charles who would be the next in succession. So let's talk a little bit about his early years and how he came to be there, here to the throne of England. Well, I think his early years are, are really key to Charles. And surprisingly, you know, in all of the biographies, his early years are, are very much skimmed over. There's there's not a lot, um, which was really quite surprising. Um, so when I started researching the biography, I really focused on those early years um, to just understand what what happened. You know, what was his how did his character form um you know what how did he develop uh, how did he become the man and then the king that that he that he was because it's a it's a crucial gap really in 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 anyone's development 
and and you're right, you know, those years in Scotland. So he was born in 1600, 19th of November, 1600 in Dunfermline. Um, and he grew up, um, you know, he was baptised, you know, almost immediately because he was that weak um, and wasn't thought that, it, that he would live. And um, surprising everybody, he pulled through. And, and his early years, so up to at least the age of five, it was a constant struggle with um, really a physical struggle. Um, so, so he could he could barely walk and talk, um, and you know he he you know in Dunfermline uh, he was under the governorship um, of a man called Alexander Seaton, Lord Fivey, and uh, Fivey had a, a lot of daughters. So if you can imagine this uh, this you know baby you know going on to um a, what we would call a toddler not being able to toddle um you know he's got all of these various uh um girls of all ages um fivey's uh children um you know dancing running around around him and charles is, is stuck in this shell uh, which must have been increasingly frustrating and um you know, it's it's recorded that um, attempts were made, you know, to to help, you know. So he 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 struggled to walk the length of um, a, a corridor, for example, without the aid of a a, a serving lady holding them on, and a staff. Um, but he persisted, and when his father became king of England in sixteen hundred and three. Um, so, you know, Charles was sort of two and a half, getting, you know, just under two and a half. Uh, the whole family moved, you know, not long after that. And it was because of Charles's health that he was left in Scotland. He was the only one that was that remained in Scotland. So from 1603, uh, we move into 1604. Um, and finally, there, there's discussion of moving him into England if his health permits and a doctor is sent from England um, to assist with that, and uh, the, the reports are, are completely overinflated. This doctor inflates the reports because his mission really is to get Charles south, and um, this journey that he undertook, um, you know, he walked the length of that corridor in the end because he wanted to see London. He wanted to get back to his mother. Um, you know, he was so excited about going, and uh, this journey uh, was a very um difficult one for Charles you know it took I think it was nearly two months uh, stopping off at various places you know as he went and it must have been just an immense exciting period for him you know this let's talk a little bit about the travel into Stockholm because it's not like today you can take a, a train ride from Edinburgh for example to London this was quite a bit more complicated than just a four hour train ride as you can do today it's England is quite huge, but it's in the 1600, the roads as well were the best I can imagine. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, as usually around the borders between England and Scotland, there was always uh, elements of lawlessness there. And as Charles is moving south, you know, he was called the jewel, um, a precious jewel. Everybody, you know, commented on how kind and gentle he was as a, as a, as a child. And this precious jewel is coming south across the border 
uh, and there's there's a lot of you know horse stealing and things going on because the um the official um that oversaw the borders had had um uh, i think resigned so it wasn't in place so you know and, and and you're right it was a it was a huge cavalcade you know people flock to see him um because he's the last um member of the royal family that's that's uh tracking that route you know his his parents have gone his siblings have gone that way earlier um you know people are coming out to see him which for him must have been you know as i said just astounding uh, he's seen new places you've got the coast uh huge castles like bamber on the on the northumberland coast that they um pass uh and he's usually it's it's really just stopping off um for one night but occasionally the route included sort of weekends or maybe two three days stopover um depending on you know situations like plague charles's own health and um yeah you know they they would come with uh hangings for the bedrooms or wherever he, he stayed uh, you know servants would put up hangings and make it suitable for the the king's son and and he stopped at the home of uh the wentworth home in yorkshire and uh, i think this could be there's no documentary evidence but this could be the first time that charles the, the future charles the first met uh the man that would become uh, thomas wentworth earl of strafford uh one of his you know leading ministers and uh famously um sacrificed so let's talk about his entry into london as well because he would it's my understanding that he would become as detested by the court of james the first he would not he dislike the court and the court life that was and to be under james the first uh london you mean yeah in london yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think London really did a roar and trade from the court. So, yeah, they, they might might not like the court, um, but, you know, to all intents and purposes, they wanted the court there for, for trade and, and commerce. And um, although Charles's father didn't really like London, you know, he thought it was dirty, um, then then he did spend, um, you know, the, the festive period there. Um, so that there was that tradition there um, and, and it was the seat of government as well but at, at that time there was a lot of plague you know so James himself couldn't get into London um, when when he became king of England um, because of the plague so there was a lot of time spent outside of London with the family so when Charles reached um, so when he when he traveled into England he didn't go straight to London um, you know he went to Windsor Castle and then the family reunited, then went on a, um, you know, grand tour. So they, they went off for a summer progress. So there's another person I want to introduce here, and that is, let me see if I can get this name right, George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, who was in James I's court. And he doesn't seem, at first he doesn't seem to go quite along with Charles, but they will become very good friends in the end and he would stay he would as we will talk about later i'm sure have a tragic fate and be struck down again spoilers but he would be killed <laughs> later on which would devastate charles first so let's talk about buckingham and the relationship he would have 
how he came to James first court and how how he became friends with Charles. Yeah, well, obviously, so James um, had been King of Scotland, uh, James the Sixth of Scotland, for you know since the age of one. Um, so you know, almost his, his entire life, he was King of Scotland, uh, and um, th there was always a rivalry. So when he inherited the English throne, the Scots very much saw it as though that was Scotland inheriting England. You know, England were the junior partner to them. For for the English, uh, this Scottish king was sort of getting a very big step up in the world. Uh, you know, both in terms of prestige and and, and money. Um, so with with Buckingham, the, the king travelled south and, and the royal family always had a very strong um, Scottish ring around them. You know, the household um, were very much made up predominantly of Scots uh, and um, even the, the queen, Queen Anna's household as well of, of Scottish ladies. Um, it... The, I think there was always an attempt, really, to to get more English into that, um, you know, influential circle, and Buckingham was <laughs> Buckingham certainly got there and uh, you know soared to new heights. Um, so initially, James wasn't introduced to Buckingham. So Buckingham, you know, he was just the the, the son of a, a minor gentry, you know, so. James comes south, becomes king of England, uh, has his, you know, favourites from Scotland. Um, he'd, he'd always had favourites. And Buckingham wasn't reduced to him for around 10 years after he became king of England. But when he was, it was Charles and his mother that had a hand in that. And that was to get rid of um, or oust one of James's um, powerful favourites. And they they encouraged James, you know, by you know encouraging him to knight uh, Buckingham, you know, in front of Charles and his mother. But little did they know that the monster that they were you know, bringing in, and yeah, perhaps perhaps wrong to say that Buckingham's a monster, but I just mean that that the rise the the rise in his power and his fame was just unprecedented. You know, he rose through the, the ranks of nobility, accumulated titles, offices, monopolies, uh, money, and um, to the point that the entire government was pretty much, you know, on this one man's shoulders. Um, Not that it was necessarily quite talented, it was, more, it was more that it was, in my understanding, lucky that he rose as quickly and got real lucky with his rise to power. Right place, right time. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he was a handsome man. Um, he wasn't, you know, so a handsome man, but he was quite sickly, uh, delicate, um, you know, sometimes bad tempered, you know. So, yeah, he could be charismatic, but, you know, it wasn't that he that he charmed the birds out of the trees, <laughs> but he certainly charmed James and that that's what mattered. And uh, before long, you know, as I say, he was becoming a duke, which is a huge jump. You know, he jumped over all of the aristocracy, um, much to a lot of the old English aristocrats' uh, frustrations. And, um, yeah, a lot of jealousy, um, a lot of jealousy arose. And Charles, you know, as you said there, Charles didn't get on well with Buckingham at first and and 
you know, after he became uh, Prince of Wales or you know heir to the throne after his elder brother's death, um, you know Charles. Charles saw Buckingham as taking his father away. Um, he almost saw, you know, Buckingham almost became the prince, and Charles was sort of ousted. And as Charles grew older, Charles was often the one that was acting as the minister, and Buckingham was the prince, the king's son. And the king used to refer to Buckingham as his son, um, as well as a lot of other, you know, endearing titles. And, and Charles rebelled against that, you know, so he'd squirt the, you know, as, as a young lad, he'd squirt the fountain on Buckingham and drenched him. Uh, and and his father, King James, gave him a, a, a belt across the ear, which was very, um, you know, mortifying for Charles for that to happen. Um, there was once when Buckingham had a, a nice ring. Uh, Charles got his hands on it. It got lost. And the king you know, really took Charles to task for that, you know, embarrassed him, uh, wouldn't see him, forced him to apologise. Uh, and and the two clashed. So Buckingham and Charles are up against each other. And eventually Charles comes to realise that Buckingham's here to stay. There's nothing that you can do without Buckingham say so. So even the son, Charles, has to realise that He's got to start cultivating this man. He's got to start working with him and not going up against him. And um, as James gets older, you, you do see the dynamics change. And for Buckingham, it was very slick. So he almost moved. He kept the influence with the old king and almost seamlessly moved to take on and, you know, the, the confidence and build the build the confidence of Charles you know, that, that relationship built Charles's confidence and, and the two sort of benefited from that, you know, and uh... there seemed to be, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or not, but there seemed to be a theory that James, sorry, Buckingham was the lover of James the first. Is there any truth to this or what, what is your take on this? It, it's a hard one because, and there's a very good biography of James, which uh, has just been written by Stephen Vierapin. Um And I think the answer is we, we don't know what that entailed, but certainly they were extremely close. Um, some of the, the letters and the correspondence between the two were very, very um, personal. Um, you know, whether that was a, a full relationship or whether it was, who, who knows, you know, emotional only i don't think we'll we'll know for certain but uh you know james used to refer to him you know like his wife um but at the same time he used to refer to him as an adopted son um that would be kind of weird to have an intimate yeah. relationship <laughs> yeah the, the, it's, it's definitely a strange a strange one um but yeah it's it's difficult to know exactly how intimate it was there's, talk, clear, there's clearly intimacy there, though. So let's, let's talk about his uh, the marriage match, the first marriage match with, with Charles I, which was the Spanish Infanta, which was Maria Anna, who he was supposed to be betrothed. And Charles, of course, was super excited about this, but it doesn't seem that the bride, the would almost bride to be, felt the same way. But he oh, did manage to persuade his father to go to Madrid in Toronto via France. So let's talk about how, they, because it was it's quite a story, 
quite a story that as well when he in Buckingham, because they are almost caught as well when they travel incognito to to the European continent and travel to yeah. Madrid to try to be, get a match with Maria and Los. As we know now, they did not happen because, of course, they are going to get to Henrietta Maria in a second, and she's an episode in herself. But uh, yeah. let's talk about the match, first match that was supposed to happen that did not happen with Charles I, Maria Anna of Spain. Well, so James, James was always a peacemaker, um, and he wanted to he wanted to be a balance. So he wanted sort of the Church of England to be the midway between. Uh, popery and Catholicism and anarchy of Puritanism. Um, and, and with his children, that's the same. You know, so his daughter was married to a, a Protestant leader, the Elector Palatine, but he always foresaw um, a Catholic bride. That was his preference, you know, from, from dear Dot, uh, that his heir would marry Catholic. And when Prince Henry, Charles's older brother, died, um, age 18 and Charles became heir he inherited and incidentally Charles lost his character at that point you know he the the burden of pressure on Charles at that point to be a replacement Henry was immense from everywhere so he had to 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 drop who he was drop personal tastes everything and become Henry um he inherited that desire for a Catholic bride from its father. And Spain dangled a carrot, really. So they, they managed to render Stuart Britain impotent on the world stage, really, because they dangled this carrot of marriage so that James would, uh, would be a good boy uh, and wait for the carrot. Uh, and they dangled it for years. And Charles had this hanging over his head for 10 years or more. Um, will they, won't they, will Spain commit? Who will Charles marry? And, and there was French brides in the mix. Um, and in the end, you know... The, it was kind of a Russ and Rachel, if I remember correctly, the situation. Yeah, that, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and in the end, Charles thought, right, enough's enough. So it got to 1623. Um, Charles is 22 years old. Uh, he and Buckingham decide to put the Spanish to the test. You know, enough of this. You know, in, in that time, during those 10 years, Charles's sister, who'd married a Protestant leader, well, that man had gone on to be um, invited to be king of Bohemia. And that opened up um, war between Catholic and Protestants in Europe. Now, James didn't commit Britain, which which was quite humiliating, really, when his daughter um, is being attacked by Catholic powers. It granted, they accepted, a, you know, a throne where the Catholic emperor had been displaced, you know, so that was naturally going to cause trouble. But James shied away from it and Spain had kept Britain out of it by, you know, dangling this character of marriage. So for Charles, it was a case of right. Ten years of will they want it? I want that sorted. Brit Stuart Britain is really very uh, embarrassing. It's a laughing stock. We need to, you know, restore the situation. But then, thirdly, Charles believed that if he did pull this wedding off, 
Um, part of the, the terms of that marriage would be that his sister and brother-in-law could be restored at least to their homelands in the Palatinate in Germany. So there was some really big reasons for why Charles thought it was time to grab the bull by the horns and leave Britain incognito um, and uh, with the Duke, Duke of Buckingham, swearing King James to secrecy. Um, but if I may name for a second, Charles was quite close to his sister, so it was quite a devastating loss for him as well when she left to marry Mary as well, that she lost her and never saw her again, because they were quite close, as far as I understand. They, they, they weren't... So Hen, Henry and Elizabeth were very close um, as children. Charles was always um, the, the one that was a little bit more distant because he didn't have his own household and there was a, an age gap. Um, you know, the, the children um, after Henry and Elizabeth, uh, there was a son called Robert who died young, uh, Margaret who died young. And then there was Charles and then there was other children that all died young as well. So Charles was always baby Charles, the the, the baby of the family. And um, when Henry, you know, as, as he got older and the, he, he, um, got closer to Henry and Elizabeth and, and was able to take part in public life, you know, and in royal engagements. I think that's when the bond started to build. So, you you know, the, there was definitely a bond. It wasn't always there, um, but that, that built up. And it, it was a big thing for her to leave uh, when, when she did. I mean, she was still very young as well. I mean. So let's talk about the journey to Madrid because it's quite a fascinating part of the story. Yeah, so the journey, I mean, you know, I've likened this recently to um, Prince William, if he was single, uh, mm -hmm. and Rishi Sunak. Um, going incognito, leaving the country without telling anyone, travelling all the way across Europe to Russia, um, picking Russia because Spain was the, the bogeyman back then, you know, it was a, the, the biggest enemy. Um, travelling to Russia to marry Putin's daughter. You know, it was something as huge as this. You know, this was the heir to the British throne putting himself uh, at the feet of the Spanish, really on good faith that that he wouldn't be arrested along the way, he wouldn't be killed, he wouldn't be drowned, you know. Um, they were almost they... caught in, I think it was near Canterbury, if I remember correctly, they were almost caught a farmer, but they had to reveal who they actually were, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah, the mayor, the mayor was quite officious and sort of said, you know, who, who what, what's going on here? And I think they, they tried to explain it away and it, he wasn't having it. And at the end, I think Buckingham had to, they said, sort of, you know, lift the disguise a little bit and uh, show him who he was. And then they were allowed to pass. Uh, and then, you know, there, there was a risk as well. They would be arrested in Paris. They were in Paris incognito. So, that that was the risk because because they were incognito, it could be taken as an affront to the French king, um, you know. But they they got away with that. Did he meet his future bride there, Henrietta Maria, when while he was there? Or did he? He did. Yeah. So it's recorded. He didn't meet her as such, and, and I think I think there was awareness that Charles was there, um, although you know it was probably not said. Um, but there was a court it, mask. Let's face it, it's not that easy to travel incognito as royalty in Europe. Yeah. 
yeah, that, that well, that's it. I mean, they did close the ports behind them. You know, as I say, James was sworn to secrecy. Uh, ministers in Britain were wondering what was going on. They knew something was afoot, but they didn't have a clue what. And and they worked on James until he broke uh, and and admitted uh, what had happened. Um, so so yeah, uh, th there was a point where he watched a court mask and he saw Henrietta, the young Henrietta, uh, taking part in that. So let's talk about his arrival in Madrid, Madrid and why this match with Maria Anna did not happen. And that's and that's the talk about this day there because it's it did not go as planned, needless to say. It it didn't, but you know, to to be fair, I, I don't think the Spanish had any intention. You know, that that there there was probably no way that they could grant um you know any sort of restoration of of the palatinate to Charles's sister and brother-in-law. No way that they could, no way that they would. Um, the, same, the same was the religious barrier, you know. So what Spain wanted was to wrangle out of this with um, better um, tolerance and, and better situation for English Catholics. Um, so they were using this to full effect. Uh, Charles, Charles obviously wasn't going to convert. They put pressure on him to do that. He refused. Um, you know, there was all sorts of kerfuffles between priests and Charles and his entourage. You know, um, one of them, Edmund Verney, punched a priest in the face who was, you know, going for a convert. You know, pushing hard for conversion. Um, you know, so. Yeah, it, it really it wasn't going to happen, but it came close. It did come close. You know, there was some um, secret uh, negotiations going on that, that, that James reluctantly rubber stamped. Um, it, it got close and then eventually the Spanish were, were you know, they, they, there's records that Charles was almost brought to tears of frustration uh, by it all, um, you know, because... They, they kept him very much pinned down. They took him to lots of um, uh, fights and sort of um, public events and, and religious events and ceremonies uh, and, and really were just distracting him, you know, until the money ran out. Um, yeah, they wouldn't let him speak to the Infanta without uh, scripting what he could say, uh, things like that, because, well, in my view, they had no intention of, of allowing this to happen. You know, she, she, she didn't she, seem to be quite taken with Charles either. Well, she she didn't. I, I think she just wasn't taken with the idea of marrying a Protestant or going to a country like England. You know, I think she she really wasn't up for that. But when when you when you fast forward and you find out what did happen to the Infanta and who she did marry, um, she she became Empress. Uh, so the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and at, at this, she did quite well uh, for herself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and that was more natural for her to do that, you know. Mm. But if we fast forward from sixteen twenty three to sixteen thirty eight, Charles's nephew, Prince Rupert, is captured by uh, the Catholics, and he's held. And at the point when he's trying to negotiate his release and Charles is involved in negotiating that release. One of the biggest supporters of Rupert and his release was 
the Infanta, who became the Empress. You know, she she um, put in a good word with the Emperor, uh, along with the Emperor's nephew, and eventually was released. So that there is a follow up to that story. You know, she did have some influence over uh, her her not her ex, but you know her former suitor's nephew. So let's talk about his second choice or second. I guess it was the first. And did he always plan to have a Henrietta Maria as a kind of backup if the marriage with Maria Anna would fail? Was that always a plan that they, they, did they negotiate with Henry the Fourth of France that they would? Uh, there, there would be a marriage between Henrietta Maria and Charles I if you know t- things were, didn't work out as they planned. Not necessarily. So not specifically. It wasn't as clear cut as that. But there had always been in in, in that ten years of um, negotiation prior to sixteen twenty three, there was always um, it was always veering from a, a French bride, Spanish bride, French bride, Spanish bride, or or, or potentially others. And, and it was all it wasn't necessarily just the, the marriage. It was the um, the European alliance network that was at play here as well. Politics, um, you know, so the French would try and uh, get the heir to the British throne marrying their princess to spite Spain or, you know, Spain would then step up the pressure to try and get it. You know, so um, th- there, there was a lot of matches or, you know, in that time where Charles was was potentially lined up with Christine, um, another daughter of the French king. Uh, Elizabeth, at one point, another daughter. Elizabeth eventually married the king of Spain. Um, Christine married uh, the Duke of Savoy. So really, by the time of 1623, when the Spanish match fell through, there was just Henrietta Maria left. And... Um, the, the the idea had certainly been discussed, um, and I think I think Charles at that point just wanted to get married uh, for stability and just to you know establish himself. So yeah, he you know so pretty much as soon as he returned to Britain, then uh, negotiations um, were were ongoing with France for Henrietta Maria. Now, Henrietta Maria. Was of course a Medici, which was one of the most prominent families in Italy, or if not at Europe at the time, and by one of the most famous bankers in Italian history. But what were the status of marrying a Medici in the sixteen hundred? Was it like whether whether still in power, or was it still prestigious to marry a Medici queen or princess? Um, I, I think that would probably have have more looked on it as being a match of a, a, a bourbon, you know, the French bourbons, that, that would probably have took precedence in in, in everybody's eyes. Um, I think the, I mean, I, I must admit, I'm not up on Medici history, um, but Marie de Medici, who was the wife of Henry IV of France, um, I mean, you know, yes, she was a formidable woman and there was there was times when she, attempted to be the regent for a young son um because henry the fourth was murdered um but there were also times when she was expelled from france so really um as a as a political force her influence was up and down but let's talk a little bit about maria maria henrietta because she didn't seem to have to my understanding that she had a mission 
when she came to England, and that was for the Catholic cross, of course. So let's talk about her, and she has been, it's my understanding that she hasn't been, I mean, it's not in English eyes, been portrayed very favor favorably until recently, that she, by historian, English historians. So let's talk a little bit about, I, I would dare say, the controversy behind Henrietta Maria. I mean, yeah, so it's Henrietta Maria. So you're right. I mean, there was a lot of unpopularity about any sort of Catholic match. And I think the, the, the shock factor of Charles traveling to Spain, of all places, um, with just uh, Buckingham, you know, and the danger that that brought when he did get back home, the whole country just rejoiced with relief, you know, that he was back safe so I think at that point, that the match with Henrietta Maria was a, a lesser of two evils. And I think it was accepted, you know, because there was relief that he was safe. But there was still very much un, a lot of unease about the fact that she was a Catholic. Um, and then couple that with Charles's high church preferences and, uh, you know, straight away there was whispers and, and concerns, especially in the Puritan uh, corners that, you know, this this could be this could be a she could convert him. Uh, you know, she her, her children. might. There is rumours that back. she did. It's my understanding. There is rumours that she did convert Charles. They, they're all vicious rumours with no truth. Um, there the, are political propaganda from the parliamentarian side. Uh, if anything, Charles and, and Leander Delisle um, is categorical about this. She's saying Charles was always a persecutor of Catholics and probably the worst persecutor, um, you know, worse than his father. Um, she, you know, there's no doubt that she she did try and um, get better a better deal for Catholics in England, you know, and that that was one of the that that's the way that anyone's going to see it, especially in Henrietta's position. You know, she's a Catholic, uh, English Catholics are persecuted more than they'd ever been. You know, she she's going to try and help out, you know, ease some of that if she can. But naturally, any any sort of pro Catholicism is going to be seen by uh, English Puritans as, uh, you know completely evil you know you can't ease up on on catholics even just easing up on it is as bad as taking away all of the, that persecution you know so um yeah she she definitely didn't you know charles was and he went to his death um refusing to give up the you know the the, the established church of england the protestant established church of england um so yeah, there, there was there was a lot of arguments that that they had about um, the prince. She once took the Prince of Wales to mass. Charles was extremely unhappy with her. That you know resulted in an argument. Um, Charles regularly you know broke the the terms of the marriage conditions. You know, so so part of that was that the children will be educated as Catholics until a certain age. That didn't happen. Uh, they were. Um, baptized protestants which was against the uh marriage terms so you know Ch charles is breaking those terms completely he's he's certainly not a catholic never was and was never tempted there, uh, there is a story where you know, henrietta maria complains that there is a big enough catholic prayer room and that charles replied well if you don't like it 
you can go to the hall, you don't like that one, you can go to the bedroom, if you don't like that one, you can go outside, if you don't like that, you can go to the park, and if you don't like that, you can I, you don't do whatever. I, there is this story, as you said, <laughs> something in the line of that. I mean, I, I, she she was well provided for in terms of uh, a place to worship, um, but that that was almost an inheritance from what was expected for the Infanta. So when negotiations were in place with the Infanta, uh, there was a um, uh, at Saint, Saint James's Palace, uh, the chapel was enlarged, you know, the, and, and created as a as a Catholic chapel for the Infanta. Well, Henrietta took that on and, uh, you know, she had she had places to worship. She had um, places to worship that were suitable for her, um, big enough. And, and in fact, a lot of Catholics flocked there um, to enjoy that protection, you know, and to worship. And uh, there was often scuffles and, and sort of street fights as, as they left. So I've got to ask because I'm. I'm a little bit curious about this. What now? Because Charles doesn't seem to be being a type. He doesn't strike me as someone to take mistresses around him. But was he a virgin bride when he entered with Maria Henrietta Maria's marriage, or did he have have it tried had sexual affairs before the marriage, or was he a virgin bride? There, so it's it's a real grey area. So there, there's a, not a lot known about his private life as, as a, a young man after a book is um, yeah <laughs> well in terms of his his personal and, and sexual relationships as, as a young man there's not much known so however there is a letter which which i've mentioned in the book um that that charles wrote to buckingham and uh, it's along the lines of sort of saying yes uh i was visited by uh the the person that must not be named uh she, you know she she took my mind off the <laughs> the um the the fallout so he'd fallen out with his father and uh you know she she took his mind off it apparently and uh he was going to see her again on the saturday and uh the, buckingham was told not to tell the king about this um so yeah there's a lot of speculation on who could that have been and you know what could have happened there i mean buckingham buckingham was uh certainly rumoured to have had um, infidelities. I mean, you know, he was certainly a man about out of town. So, you know, there, there is the thought that he, you know, introduced Charles to to, to that. Uh, we'll never know for certain unless something uh, is unearthed. But I, I personally speaking, I don't think that he was uh, a, a virgin husband, you know, Um but, but certainly he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going about sowing his wild oats. He wasn't that type of character either. Um, you know, there, there's poems that he that he wrote to a noted beauty uh, when he was a, when he was a late teenager. Um, you know, and it's that he, he very much had that chivalrous desire um, to be like a knight errant, you know, and you know, saw saw sort of women and his role and you know, his life in in a more rose-tinted, chivalrous way. <laughs> that's, that's something I want to bring up, because but there is the in, uh, incident with Buckingham and the Queen where she enters that would kind of put 
make a put a strain to the friendship with Charles first and Buckingham. That he I don't know I don't remember if it's the Queen's lap or one of her maids of honor that he rests upon, but that they said there's this story where Buckingham enters the Queen and her maids of honor, a lady ladies in waiting, and they he rests upon a breast, I think, or what. I'm not quite sure how the story goes, but there is this story that Buckingham does something Charles finds hard to forgive him for. I don't remember exactly. This is why I'm not a historian, but there is this incident with the Queen. I've I've not heard an incident like that. I mean, I think that would have, um, I think that probably would have horrified Charles, really, because, I mean, that, you know, he would have took that as quite an affront as well against him. But, I mean, certainly... Buckingham and Henrietta Maria didn't exactly get on at the start um, because when when she came to England and she had her French household, quite a significant French household, uh, that caused a lot of problems, you know, at the very start. Plus, Buckingham wanted to make sure that he and his family were protected. Their influence was protected. So he wanted his family in key positions in the Queen's household but by the terms of the marriage, she had a strong, uh, large French household with her. And with Buckingham's family, except in his mother, being Protestant, then, you know, there was no place for them. So there was a real battle between the three of them over that. Um, and in the end, Charles came down and dismissed the French, pretty much all of the French. And uh, And from that point, you know, Buckingham's family were foisted on the Queen. Uh, she was very unhappy with that. Uh, and then in the end, I think the, the, there was so, sort of a, a brief period of peace before Buckingham's murder. And uh, after that, I think that's when Charles and Henrietta Maria uh, really fell in love. And uh, their marriage was was a strong one. From that I'm, I'm not even what to bring up. Um... But Henrietta Maria as well is she didn't speak English at first. She only spoke French. But did she learn English at at all, or did she only speak French? Because it must have been quite difficult when not being able to speak language to your husband. I mean, there are relationships but probably today as well. When this is pure, this is the case where not they don't speak the same language. But today you at least have Google Translate, which is somewhat helpful. But they did, as yeah. of course, they didn't have it that back then. So how did communication grow? And did she ever learn English enough to be able to communicate with Charles? And what 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 was the case there? Because it was quite difficult for her as well when she didn't speak English at all. Yeah, that, that's speak. right. You know, she, you know, she was just a teenager as well. But I, I think that that she would have had lessons. You know, what once it was realised that she was destined to be Queen of England, uh, because you know, just before their marriage, Charles, you know, Charles' father died, so you know, she was destined to be Queen. Um, I think she would have had some some basic, you know, English lessons. Charles spoke French. Um, she always wrote French. Um, certainly, the letters that I've seen in archives, they're, they're all in French. Um, you know, even when she's writing to English courtiers, uh, she's writing in French. Um, but I, you know, I, I I don't think that she 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 never spoke English. You know, I, I think she she would have spoken some English. And uh, uh, but, but as to how much, I, I'm honestly not too certain. 
Um, but there, there was no language barrier with Charles, you know, I mean, they, they could at least converse themselves. Let's talk about a little bit about her ladies in writing as well, because they were detested by Charles, and he eventually ended up sending to Rupin and Rhett and Marianne, and ended up sending them back to France. And uh, there's one, another one. There is a dwarf, I don't remember his name, as, but he has quite Jeffrey a story Hudson. as well that she brings with him. He's, and I'm sure he has well, another one that is, deserves his own episode as well, because his story is so fascinating. But let's talk about the how the how the ladies in waiting, the French friends of Henrietta would be sent away, and what how they why Charles chose to do this to Henry. Was it to be cruel, or was it because just simply because it cannot stand them? It 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 definitely wasn't cruel. Yeah, I I don't I think Charles would really struggle to be cruel. <laughs> um, you know, he certainly wasn't Henry the Eighth. Um, what you had was a, a big band of uh, French men and women coming over with Henrietta Maria, which in itself attracted a lot of negative press. Um, you know, they also became a barrier, you know, so 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 as I say, for Buckingham, um, you've got this influential man that pretty much controls the government. He's in all the key positions. Charles is very has a very strong bond with Buckingham. You know they've been through thick and thin. Um, uh, Buckingham wants positions in the Queen's household. Uh, you've also got the fact that the French um, are not really, despite this marriage, the French are not particularly supportive of of British interests. Charles is trying to sort of in, intercede for his sister on the continent. That's not not happening. Um, so Charles is looking for war. Uh, the French are not particularly supportive of that. And I think Charles had hoped that the marriage would have sealed something. <clears throat> um, so you've got a growing situation. Now, it's, it's, a, it's trying to weave the threads together. You've got the political thread. So when Charles became king, Parliament refused to grant him the hereditary revenues that every monarch had had for life. Uh, they they refused to grant it for life and, and gave them it for one year. And that's because there was a, a really big desire for political change. Um, so you've got from the very outset, Charles's government strangled financially. Um, he can barely operate and pay his own way. He's mortgaged everything he's got to the hilt to try and pay for war uh, to support his sister and the Protestant cause. Um so, so that's the one element. So at home, he's got that problem. Um, he's looking for French support. That's not forthcoming, uh, despite all the terms of the marriage. Henrietta herself, he can't really get close to her because of the French household. You know, there, there's um, one description that say, says that they kind of set up a, a little monastery in the, in the, the, the attic um, of the Queen's apartments and sort of closet her away so that he can't get close to her. And of course, that means no uh, no relationships here. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the two of them are not going to be sleeping together at, at times, you know, if there's a, a feast day or something like that, which is, you know, a lot, there's a lot of frustration there on everybody's part. And it, and it comes to the crunch, you know, especially when you've got Parliament saying you've relaxed 
the laws against Catholics, we want you to reinstate them immediately. Otherwise, you get no money at, at all. You know, we're going to continue to to stonewall you on the on the the, the matter of finances. Charles is itching for a war. He wants to go to war with Spain. Uh, he wants to get the Palatinate back for his sister. You know, he, he's thinking, well, this is a Protestant crusade. Yet my Parliament's not letting me do it. Um, not giving me the means, and France is certainly not um, engaging either. So he really had a choice. He had a choice. Does he abide by the marriage terms? Does he try and please France? Or does he try and appease his parliament? So what he does is, I think naturally, he dismisses the French, because not only is that going to uh, hopefully show parliament that he's not um, going to convert that he's just married a Catholic doesn't mean that he's Catholic he's wanting to send that message so he dismisses the French attendants he also hopes that brings him closer to his wife you know because he wants to have a loving relationship with her um, but what it certainly does is sends a message back to France saying that the king's just broken the terms so that doesn't look good for Charles on, on the world stage, you know, he's broken uh, terms there. However, when he does that, what really uh, affects things is that Parliament simply just say, oh, OK, you've dismissed them. You've reinstated the, the laws against Catholics. Well, well, that's that's the basic level. That's kind of what always should have been there. You've now put that back in place. Now we want you to, to, to do this and do that and give up this. So for Charles, that's absolutely humiliating. He, he's really just, um, he's upset his wife. He's then um, gone back on his word to um, a foreign country, a foreign power, and all for nothing. You know, he's not got a penny extra from Parliament. Uh, so in the end, he dismisses Parliament. And, um, you know, not, not entirely, and, and and from that on, that that that's how it rolls year after year. You've got Charles attempting to sort of prove to everybody. Is, is this the beginning of the end? It it really is. Yeah, I mean, I think from the very start, it was unavoidable. And you know, people say, "Well, what if his brother had survived?" In other words, it was Charles's character that caused the civil war. It wasn't. It was much more than the character of the the, the king. You know, if Henry had survived, Henry would have had us immediately into the Thirty Years' War uh, in Europe. Now, that would have brought a necessity for military, arms, men. It would have brought a huge drain on the Treasury at that time, on the Stuart Treasury, which, which was in a difficult state. And that would have beggared the same question for Henry as it did for Charles. Um, who's going to grant that money? Will Parliament grant it? What do they want in return? So... Uh, you know, from the start, it was a, it was a it was a difficult one. You know, if you've got you've got Parliament unprecedentedly saying you're not getting the money that your predecessors have, that that's quite an affront to someone as proud as Charles, uh, and you know that that fosters mistrust. And then Charles can often not be the best um, at PR either in politics. You know, so he he doesn't manage that situation particularly well either. And then you, before you know it, you've got two sides that don't trust each other, and and, and it can't it can't it, it can't get anywhere from there other other than worse. Before we go into the civil war, there is a, a, the Atlantic disastrous attack on France 
that he attempts to, because he mentioned him what in the war and in thus Indian attack France. But I wish goes it's a disaster. He's now Henry the Fifth to put it that way. I don't think that was his intention, but he does try and he gets the war he wants. He both attacked Cadiz as well earlier and he attacked Rochelle in France. So it's it doesn't go as planned. It's this isn't doesn't have the best equipped army in the world, you might say. Well, well, that's right, and I, and I think that that has to stem back to the financial situation. So he hasn't got the money to do this properly. Um, you know that there's there's relations that he's the partner of ambassadors. It's customary to give a a gift. He, he's actually pulling jewels out of the crown and giving them to ambassadors. He's got nothing. He's spending hours. In, in sessions with the Danish ambassador and he's breaking down into tears. I, I see in the book that it, it does sound like he goes through a bit of a nervous breakdown. Um, you know, he he can't he can't seem to please anyone. You know, in his mind, he's gone for this Protestant crusade, which should unite everybody. But he just can't seem to do it. And people are not uniting. They're picking him apart. They're not granting him the money for it. And he's literally given everything. You know, he's, he was very good with money as, as a young man. He's blown all of that. He's mortgaged the royal lands. He's he's granted some concessions, which didn't bring anything. Um, so he's trying to go it alone. He's used the dowry from Henrietta Maria. And he, as you say, he pulls together a navy and uh, some soldiers, you know, several thousand soldiers, and he's ready to go to war with Spain, uh, and and he he does send the fleet out, but the fleet goes out, and they are badly provisioned, the badly clothed, the badly paid, um, the, you know the fleet's in a bad state of repair, and it's down to money. He hasn't got the money to kit it out right. Naturally, it gets to the Spanish coast, doesn't do very well. It limps back, and uh, you know Parliament are all there, ready to gun gun him for who's to blame, who's to blame, and that goes to Buckingham and, in effect, the king. But really, he's been set up to fail on a number of fronts. And and then <laughs> Charles's problem is he, he, he tends to bite off more than he can chew, so he goes all in. And, and not only does he uh, have this war with Spain, he then declares war on France, and uh, he wants to relieve Protestant La Rochelle. Again, he thinks, well... Surely, you know, so you know, Parliament must support this. You know, this is a, a Protestant bastion in France holding out. You know, it it's, doesn't make sense to sort of, you know, ring around sort of uh, domestic tittle tattle politics you know, when when something like that's at stake. But uh, yeah, there's no money granted. Uh, so again, you know, as you say, it goes to La Rochelle. Buckingham commands that in person and uh there's a lot of sources that say buckingham you know was personally courageous you know did his best there's others that say that uh he was um inept but i i think whatever you look at it again for me this is stemming back to, to money you know they're going over there the scaling ladders are far too short it's a disaster um you know the 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 blockade doesn't work. Uh, the the Spanish are, are, are then threatening the backs. 
saw Buckingham's force to withdraw, and also the what the the I think there were also promises that that that, that assault against La Rochelle would be backed by uh, risings within France, which don't come. Um, so yeah, it, it limps back to port, and yet again, you know, it's right who's to blame, who's to blame, and the blame game goes on, and uh, Charles's, you know, Charles's reputation. Um, and Britain's reputation is really at a terrible ebb. You know, I mean, no, nobody. They they were not a fair British Empire. Yeah, needless to say. Uh, absolutely not. If if anything, <laughs> if anything, if you if you if you had Britain try to ally with you, well, they're, they're going to bring a lot of rotten ships, uh, uh, starving seamen, and um, you know unpaid um, troops who would just mutiny. So yeah. <laughs> terrible reputation now another thing I want to talk about is another that Charles spent a lot of money on is the famous artist Inigo Jones of course who was very much present in Charles the first class let's talk a little bit about his presence at court and how he came to be paint a lot of paintings for Charles the first and how he came an architecture under Charles the first yeah Inigo Jones came to be well, Inigo Jones was was a master of a lot of things. So, so Charles uh, used him to design the scenes and the settings for court masks, which were these grand plays. Um, is this he, part as well why they were they were broke because they spent so much money on this art and art architecture and designs that only Inigo Jones and one others. Well, I, I think at that stage. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, it's always quoted well he had money to buy paintings, but really the, the, the money that was going towards a particular collection that he acquired in, in I think, 1627, which was around the time of the the uh, Ile de Ré expedition. I mean, a lot of that was agents buying it on Charles's behalf on credit, mm. you know, so, you know, he wasn't flashing the cash, you know, and using the money for paintings and not ships. Um, he was actually bankrupting himself on military and uh, but at the same time using what little credit he had left at that point early point in his reign for people to contribute sums of money to to secure it for him on the promise that he would repay them uh so yeah it wasn't anything substantial enough to have you know meant the choice between victory and war or, or a nice set of paintings for your wall. Uh, you know, the, the money for the paintings was never anything, you know, that, that would rival the cost of a navy or, or paying 10,000 troops. Now, the next person I want to introduce that enters Parliament, and I'm sure many who is familiar with this era, and of course, one of the most famous villains of the, of the, the, the Charles I's reign is, of course, or Bossier villain is Oliver Cromwell, and I'll, let's discuss this as well. That that we talked about before the podcast is an episode in itself. Let's talk about the entry of Oliver Cromwell and Bossier, the villain that history makes him out to be. Because oh, every time someone mentions that Cromwell, in of course they refer to that. Oh, he's a Cromwell. That's of course the, not, that's not a good thing to be associated with these days. Or and after Cromwell. After Cromwell's reign, but was he the villain that, he made, that history made him out to be? And let's talk about Oliver Cromwell's background and into the Parliament. 
I mean, the thing is with, with Cromwell, people say, oh, yeah, he was a nobody, Mr. Nobody at that time. Well, yeah, perhaps he was, but he was certainly not a nobody. You know, he had um, a lot of influential family members. Um, you know, his fa you know, his, his fairly wealthy family himself. He wasn't a particularly wealthy man at that point, you know, but he, as I say, he had a lot of influential family members. And of, um, and of course, if I, if I may, he was, of course, shared a name with the famous Thomas Cromwell and the other Henry yes. VIII as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there, there were family links there as well to, to Thomas Cromwell. Um, but at that point, he was very much associated with a, a Puritan group who were looking for more religious freedom. Uh, of worship and they were they were casting their eye really towards the new world or america um uh so he was in that circle so you know that's like the likes of the earl of warwick john pym lord c um and really so so cromwell you know becomes an mp um but again you know he's not particularly prominent in, in terms of opposition to Charles, but I mean, and it, it was, it was only in hindsight, you know, decades later that somebody said uh, that a famous comment was made about him in around 1641, 1642, you know, that he was a sloven and had blood on his collar. And somebody said, well, that's sloven, sir. Uh, I have a mind will rise to be the greatest in the land. Well, that's probably false. You know, it's it's a, a later story. Um, you know, but he was there. It's and, and the film Cromwell. I'm not sure if you've seen it. That that puts him squarely in in the place in Parliament. You know, face an arrest from the king. Well, that that's false. Um, you know, Cromwell wasn't. You know, in the echelons of leadership, parliamentary leadership at that point. But he was definitely had his influence, you know. In, I mean, the speech that Richard, I must confess, I've only seen the speech that he delivers when he dissolves the parliament that Richard Harris is just a perf perfect uh, casting for all the Cromwell is. I mean, the way he delivers his famous speech, of course, that is after Charles I, but still, the, the way he delivers that speech is, and I keep going back to watch that time and time again because it's so good delivery. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the film, it, it is very good. Yeah, it is. Um, and it certainly definitely makes for a good scene. Yeah. But yeah, so Cromwell, I mean, he he, he comes to, to, to prominence in the Civil War. You know, and he's, he's a fairly junior um, officer. Uh, then he Which side does, the it is on the, it should, does it choose the Royalist or does it choose the... Is it, is it on the other opposite side of Charles? Because it does for Charles' side. execution in the end, but he does go against Charles. Yes, yeah, from the start, uh, Cromwell is a parliamentarian, and that fits with his Puritan sympathies, it fits with his uh, network, it fits with his family you know, influences. Um, so, yeah, he, he's well in with the parliamentarians. Um, naturally, he becomes a parliamentarian officer, to see it rises up the ranks he becomes sort of second in command to the earl of manchester um in the what, what was known as the eastern association so a regional parliamentarian sort of territory um around east anglia lincoln you know that way um becomes second in command there 
and uh, he gets into all sorts of wrangles with his superiors, um, you know, who who perhaps aren't prosecuting the war as um, as ruthlessly as he wants it to be, uh, and uh, it comes to a head towards the end of the war when Parliament, uh, when there, there's an attack on the leadership of the parliamentarian armies, which are all. Um, well, predominantly, I should say, not all of them, predominantly peers, the Earl of Essex, the Earl of Manchester, uh, the Earl of Warwick. <clears throat> and an act is put forward uh, to try and get around this, uh, to get rid of these peers who are wavering or sometimes speaking too much about peace, um, that, that they should all resign their commission. So no MP, no member of Parliament, House of Lords, House of Commons, should hold a military rank. Uh, that's agreed. Everybody resigns, including Cromwell. But then Cromwell, I think one or two others are then given their commands back. <laughs> so, um, and then at that point, they're looking for somebody who's got the presence, got the reputation, and who can appeal to moderates on the parliamentarian side as well as militants. And they land on Sir Thomas Fairfax um, as the man who I think could be moulded by people to 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 sort of deliver whatever victory is needed, uh, but also has a good reputation and is an honest, you know, guy. Thomas Fairfax, you know, he's 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 a fairly decent guy at heart, um, so he does appeal. He's kind of the Robespierre of. Uh... Of the inland, if you will, if that's a good comparison, I don't know, but the, it, the one comparison is he is kind of the Robespierre, the uncorruptible, if, in a way. Yeah, although Cromwell, the, the problem is. I mean, I mean Fairfax, Fair, not Cromwell, but Fairfax. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Although Fairfax shied away from, from, from bloodiness, you know, he did try and sort of achieve a victory without shedding too much blood um you know it was only when he was forced that it that he would that he, that he would end up sort of, sort of before colchester for example the siege of colchester uh, he made an example of it to try and stop um the breakout of another war uh so i don't think he's as bloody as robespierre but i, th I think you know I, I think he just wants to to give a victory he wants peace he wants stability um you know he doesn't want the shedding of you know too much blood. Let's talk a little bit about Charles I in the civil war because his wife, as you as you mentioned, they are quite broke and they had to put everything basically. And Henrietta Maria leaves her France and they never be able or is here again. And she has to go back to France to raise money for the for their cause, for the royalist cause, but. Did he have any support in, in Europe, Charles I? Was Europe kind of, what was Europe's view on the civil war that raged in, in whether pro-parliamentarians and whether pro-countries that were pro-royalties? You know, what was yeah. that? Was there anyone who cared at all in this, in the conflict of a little island? Uh, there, there was, yeah. So I think, I think naturally, I think all, all of the monarchies supported Charles, at least in spirit. Um, but being 
quite frank, I, I don't think many of them actually supported him. You know, there was always rumours that he was going to get troops from France or Denmark or um, the low countries. So, you know, and, and that never materialised. I mean, France had its own domestic problems. Um, they, France actually profited from having England neutralised by civil war. So really, for France, they really did play both sides. You know, they, they wanted the war to continue. Uh, and when it came to a, the, the point of a, a peace settlement, France really played the game to make sure that neither side came out as ultimate victor. For France, they just wanted the king to be a bit of a puppet king to sort of maintain the balance. They didn't want a fervent Puritan parliament, for example, you know, because that, that would work not in France's favour. Um, whereas Charles was much more preferable but they, you know, we've seen Charles was a Catholic persecutor. He didn't, so they didn't want him to be all powerful. Um, prob probably the the people that that sort of seemed to care most or, or really do more to help were, were the Dutch. And, and when I say the Dutch, again, I'm not saying all of uh, the Dutch government, but certainly the Prince of Orange was Charles's son-in-law. Um. Well, from from sixteen forty seven anyway. Uh, so yeah, so the, the the Dutch did seem to try and get involved, send send ambassadors, but but really across Europe, you know, all of the crowns of Europe and the governments were still uh, sending ambassadors and envoys to talk to Parliament, you know, and perhaps offer to mediate. So. You know, nobody was actually out there saying uh, we we detest what Parliament have done. The traitors, we are going to side with the king, you know, to help him, uh, you know, defeat these traitors. There, there was none of that. There was no hard line uh, messages coming from Europe. More conciliatory. So that's about talk about the trial of Charles I and the end and we have to of course talk about and eventually when we have to talk about the famous painting of Charles taking saying goodbye to his family which is associated as well with Charles I think but we have to let's begin with the trial of Charles I yeah so the, the because trial and, and again as we mentioned in the last episode when we talked about the French Revolution, it was kind of a kangaroo court in this case as well. It was a court that yeah. made up his mind. It was it was never more to humiliate Charles than to actually think there was a standing chance that he would actually come over this. I mean, there the, there are schools of thought that say that um, that the verdict was open, you know, until close to the the end. Uh, I personally think there was no room. You know, there was a lot of discussion uh, previous to that court being set up. You know, pe people were, you know, th this wasn't just cruel necessity, you know, is the term that's often used. They wanted to execute the king. They wanted him out of the way. And I think a lot of people had thought, well, uh, there can't be peace until he's gone. Now, what I will say there is there can't be peace until he's gone. Well, in other words, they can't get what they want until he's gone. That's the thing. So we we often hear um, accusations of Charles being untrustworthy, uh, going behind people's backs. But actually, during his captivity, 
he had the Scots uh, Parliament, the English Parliament, and the English New Model Army, three elements coming to him, seeing him as what they called the golden ball. He uh, didn't have and, quite that bad time in captivity, as far as I understand. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the best, but there was there was moments. Yeah, so certainly Carisbrook Castle wasn't a, a particularly good <laughs> confinement for him, apart from the rumours of Jane Warwood, uh, a royalist spy, apparently getting smuggled into his rooms. But there's speculation there. I mean, I personally think could it have been a relationship, sexual relationship, or could it have actually been a ruse? And and you know, they are painting it as that. But the painting it as that just so that for the jailers, uh, it's not unusual to see them together because people believe that, uh, you know, she's going to his bed. Well, actually, she's going in there and getting letters. She's taken out his writings, you know, what would form uh, his um, justification, you know. So he's he's he wrote up uh, a lot as much as he could about how things had got to the point that they did. And that was published um, immediately after his execution, uh, the famous icon Basilike, uh, and that was being smuggled out of Carisbrook captivity um, at that time. Anyway, that, that's that's an aside with the captivity. Um, so yeah, in in his captivity, you know, there's th- there's these accusations that he was untrustworthy and that there was no peaceful settlement because he just didn't uh, uh, agree to negotiate. But he'd given away a lot of, of prerogative crown powers in 1641 before the war so and that that wasn't enough to satisfy and by that time both sides were at the point where neither trusted each other so it had to be ultimate annihilation from one side or the other um and in captivity you know they, they're coming back again english parliament coming back with uh these are the terms we want and these terms are deeply, deeply humiliating, not just personally to Charles and his faith and his uh, honour, but they are uh, also completely negating his coronation oath. And this is a king who thinks that the civil war has come about because he has granted too many concessions before the civil war in 1641. So he's now standing firm. So far from being untrustworthy he's actually been as clear as he can be saying i'm not willing to grant or give up the church of england um i'm only willing to give up the militia of the the kingdom for 10 years then 20 then he pushes it out and says well for the rest of his life if it's granted to his son at his death um but what what you've got is the scots the english parliament and the uh, new model army wanting to get their own agenda uh, into the peace terms. And they want to use Charles to do that. So all of these parties are as bad as each other. They're all as untrustworthy as each other, really. Um, The difference is we see Charles as an individual and it's easier to pin the blame for the lack of a peaceful settlement on one man's untrustworthiness rather than on 300 men in parliament who were sort of faceless you know or uh, a, a, a few scottish commissioners um who were only representative of part of their country or an army that's made up of militant uh elements you know so i think that's the the thing to remember and and then it, it the, the the peace 
Obviously, there, there's no peaceful settlement that could be found until the end of 1648. And that is when Charles suddenly buckles and starts to make concessions more than he's ever done before. Um, he even writes to the Prince of Wales and apologizes, you know, and says, I'm so sorry, you know, because he's breaking part of his coronation oath. He's not handing off that hereditary power anymore to his son in, in these terms. And Parliament really wear him down to the point where they believe they've got a workable settlement that would restore the king, uh, give him some um, his revenues back and, and allow a, a suitable power sharing. The new model army don't want that. You know, they, they, the, the English Parliament are termed more pro-Presbyterian. Now, these are, um, at that point, they're sort of like midway. You know, they're not um, at the Puritan element. They're not at the King's High Church element. They're sort of midway, more, more along the Scottish uh, line of religion. And um, they are ready to do a deal with Charles. They invite him to London, uh, you know, towards the end of 1648. And the army do not want that. Uh, they realise that if Charles goes to London and an agreement is made, uh, there may be a, a good uh, balanced government, but it will not include uh, anything that would be beneficial to the Puritans. It won't include sort of uh, more rights and, and voting rights for the levellers. Um, you know, the, you know, Parliament don't want, but Cromwell even doesn't want to give voting rights to uh, men over 21 like the levellers want. Uh, you know, he said, Cromwell himself says you shouldn't get to vote in this country just because you breathe the air. You know, <laughs> he's very much uh, only willing to you know keep the status quo you get a vote in Parliament if you have land or property. Um, but the levellers are quite militant and they're part of the new model army. Cromwell's there. He doesn't want this to happen. Fairfax, as the commander of the new model army, is carried along by the tide. Cromwell is by far um, a very much more dominant man than Fairfax. Uh, Fairfax is moderate by uh, preference. And uh, it gets to the point where the new model army march on London eliminate all of the MPs, take them out of Parliament, imprison them, uh, you know, refuse to let them sit. Any MP that's um, sympathetic to the is, Royalists... Is, was this a coup d'etat in a sense? It was, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it succeeds hook, line and sinker. You know, so Parliament is left as a rump. It's called a rump because all you've got left is uh, an element that will support anything that that radical army desires. So the treaty with Charles is then scrapped. Um, Charles is brought to London, but he's brought to London and put on trial. Um, the, the leaders of that group, you know, Cromwell, Ayrton, Henry Ireton, um, his son-in-law, um, Lord Grey of Groby, they're all looking now to um, get rid of the king and, uh, you know, go to lawn and um, build build a, a state of their own. And the trial, so yeah, the trial opens um, in January 1649, and the, Charles quite naturally refuses to accept the validity and the legitimacy of the, of the, of the court. Um, and 
they know that he's going to do that. There's no other plan for him to do. You know, he, this is a hand-picked group of commissioners, around 135, I think there are. Um, and when it comes to it, even though they are hand-picked for their um, agreeableness to, to what's going on, there's only ever about half of them that actually sit at the court. Uh, Fairfax doesn't take up his place. And Cromwell really keeps them all in line. Uh, where When there is wavering in the, in the ranks, Cromwell's there um, asking them, what on earth are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> be quiet. Um, and, and as Charles refuses to plead, put in a, a, a plea, because to do so would be to recognise the court. Uh, and even as far as Charles doesn't take his hat off in the court, because to do that would be uh, to acknowledge the court's uh, standing. And he can't do that. So this is not him being arrogant. He keeps his hat on. He can't acknowledge that court. The moment he does, there's more at stake than just his life. The moment he acknowledges a court that has been set up by the power of the sword, then then. The more, you know, as soon as he does that, then the liberties and the powers of the crown are gone uh, because the sword rules all. Uh, so he stands firm and they try and get him to plead. Um, he doesn't. And they come down with the, the death sentence. And at that point, I think Sir Charles is all for he wants Parliament reassembled. He wants to talk to his Parliament. He says, I want the House of Lords, the House of Commons in its entirety with the band members present, and I want to talk to them. Um, and, and that's refused. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it proceeds to the death penalty. And I think that's the point where he's quite shaken that they are going to go ahead and, and and sort of that sword is going to cut down the law um, and everything with it. Let's talk about the, that we mentioned earlier, the famous painting where he does say goodbye to his family where he hold around him right before the execution. And let's talk a little bit about this famous painting of Charles, which I'm sure most people have seen. And that's probably what they think about Charles if when they hear about Charles I. Yeah, that's it. I mean, a, a horrendous moment it must have been, you know, and especially for the children. Um, so the, the, there's two two of Charles's children that are left in London at the time. Um, so his son... Prince Henry and his daughter, Princess Elizabeth. Uh, James, Duke of York, had only recently escaped parliamentary custody. Now, Henry and Elizabeth have always been in parliamentary custody from the start of the Civil War. Um, and they are granted an audience. And incidentally, um, they're, they're allowed to see him for one last time. So they, they come to the rooms uh, by that time. Charles is trying to steel herself uh, over what's to come. You know, he's he's meditating. Um, and Henry is slightly too young to fully understand the, the full situation. Elizabeth um, is old enough. I think Elizabeth is uh, 13. Um, and she she is in floods of tears. Uh, he's he takes her and comforts her um, and you know she she's he talks to her you know just he gives them the last things that he's got left to give them you know a book to Elizabeth about how to ground herself against Catholicism uh, as if she needs it you know she's 
uh, a fervent, fervent in Protestant. Uh, you know, gives out the last few little gifts that he has, um, tells them to pass on messages to the family, you know, i.e. to Henrietta, you know, that his love was the same uh, to the last. Um, doesn't, doesn't it tell his son Henry that he must not accept the crown if they give it to him? Because that's, I don't remember exactly the words by heart, but it does say something that he must not accept the crown if he is offered, which he, does, which he of course doesn't do. He, do, he does, yeah. So so Elizabeth, as I say, is, is really distraught. Henry sits Henry on his knee and says, you know, listen, they will cut off thy father's head. And um, the boy looks up at him and he said, you know, you must not be made a king by them as long as your brothers, Charles and James, do live. And uh, Henry responds and says, I'll be torn to pieces first. And, you know, Charles takes a lot of heart from that. Um, because at that point, you know, this is not this is not uh, silly thought. Um, Parliament were considering putting the youngest son on the throne as a puppet king uh, and bypassing, you know, the the, the other heirs. That there was that thought, um, and yeah. It, it, so so then, I think as soon as he's he's told Henry that, what I mean, Elizabeth is is very upset again. Um, and at that point, it, it really takes its toll on Charles, you know, considering what's coming in the next few days. And uh, they take their leave. <coughs> There's a, a lot of to and fro where he goes back and hugs Elizabeth um, because of uh, how distressed she is. And uh, after they leave, he literally collapses. So Charles, his, his legs go. Um, it's took a lot out of him. And uh, he realizes that he needs to, um, you know, get back to to a, a, a place in his own mind where he can cope with what's going to come uh, and not be this affected. Um, and from that point, he refuses to see anyone else. Um, you know, his nephew's asking to see him and he refuses. Uh, and uh, he, he prepares for the end. So, of course, let's talk about Henrietta Maria's reaction as well. And she is devastated. I don't think she ever truly loved Charles. She was still devastated to hear that her husband had been executed. And as well, again, I want to ask, what was the rest of Europe's reaction to the execution of a king? Because as, again, to draw a parallel to the French Revolution and Marie Antoinette and Louis XIV, so sorry, not Louis XIV, but sixteen was executed, this was kind of a short reign throughout Europe because they thought that this is not okay, you can't do this to royal families, even if they are disposed in a revolution, it's not okay to just kill them. But that was the reaction in 1790s, but sorry, yeah, 1790s, but this, what, was it the same reaction through, throughout Europe or was it just because horror. it was less respected? Yeah, absolute horror. You know, so... For Henrietta, um, you've got the the shock. You've you know because whether in a in her mind she's blocked out that thought that it could possibly happen. You know, surely they won't go that far and 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 damn in effect damn the entire nation. You know by doing this, uh, they do. Um, so shock, you know, sorrow, grief. You know that, that her husband's gone. Um, what are they going to do now as a family? 
Then there's God's judgment, you know, so she's got to fathom out why has God allowed this to happen? Um, and that's a very big how can you actually, impact. How can you execute the representative of God on earth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why has God let it get to this stage, you know? And uh, and then then on top of that as well, it's it's the horror that, as you see, an anointed monarch has been executed. Now, what is that going to do to that nation? What what wrath will 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 come from the Almighty? And and if nothing comes, how will that reverberate around the crowned heads? You know, you know, if if they see that it can be done, you know, could could that extend? Could that that revolution roll out across other uh, kingdoms? So there's there's a lot of fear. Um, and, and yeah, the, the news some you know takes a little bit to a little bit of time to filter through. You know the ports have been stopped. There, there was a huge security crackdown on London uh, on the day of the execution, uh, with Cromwell in charge um, as the leader of the armed forces. Because Fairfax, by that point, on the very day of the execution, Fairfax is interceding and trying to get a pot like a a stay of execution from Parliament. Um, and uh, he's actually prevented from getting to Parliament by his own troops. Um, now, there's no other commander other than Cromwell that could have given orders to allow that to happen. So I personally think that there is a little bit of a coup going on on the very day as well. Uh, and Fairfax is stuck in his in the house of his secretary, can't get to uh, Westminster he ends up going to Whitehall just after the axe has fallen. And um, there's there's um, a, a, a recollection that's written down around 30 years afterwards, granted it's 30 years afterwards, that, that Fairfax actually asks, how does the king fare? And, you know, the, the, the bishop at that point is thinking, well, it's actually Sir Thomas Herbert who's accompanied Charles the whole time. Thinks, well, why, why is he asking that? You know, the king's just been executed, uh, and 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 it appears that Fairfax is unaware that the execution's gone ahead. Um, so yeah, the, the, I, I I think there's a lot uh, to consider about that day in itself as well. You know, that that particularly isn't clear enough in in history books. As to what actually happened, because it certainly wasn't a, a smooth run and day where the capital was absolutely united, the army was united, and that that and that was carried out. That's we don't round up in a minute, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of uh, and then Cromwell's republic because it doesn't end well as well. And yeah. so, but let's talk a little bit about Cromwell's Republic before we and the aftermath of the execution of Henry the First. Sorry, sorry, Charles the First. Yeah, well, so so initially, so after the king's executed, um, the House of Lords is abolished, and um, you've got the House of Commons again. It's still that rump, you know, the rump that was handpicked by the army. The army's headed by Cromwell, um, so really Cromwell's in charge. Uh, and and this is what I think a lot of the time isn't specified enough that Cromwell might not be Lord Protector at that point. He might not be um, 
the, the, the commander of the army, Fairfax, is nominally still in charge until 1650, the year later when he resigns. But there, there's no, for me, there's no doubt about it that Cromwell is the leading influence at that point. He's initially appointed as the, um, like almost the chairman of the um, the council, the, 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 the small body of council that's formed um, to govern. Really, it takes on all of the king's power. And, and, and that sort of, uh, the, the, the president of that council is rotated after that, I think every year or every other year or something. Um, and Cromwell never takes it again. But I think that's telling, you know, because behind the power behind that council is the army, that the army won that war. The army has um, executed the king. The army has eliminated um, the people from parliament that, that were opposed to it. Cromwell is the head of that army. Um, and then in 1653, he then dissolves parliament uh, in, in, in the speech in that you mentioned. Speech, yeah. Yeah. And and this is where I think surely Cromwell realises what the king was up against all those decades ago, because Cromwell has had his fill of parliament. You know, he's dissolving even a rump of, of militant parliament that really should be the biggest supporters. Um, he's having to, to um, dissolve them. And he's doing that with troops. And unlike Charles I, who went to Parliament to arrest five members um, and left his troops outside and went into the chamber, took his hat off and everything. Cromwell's marching into the chamber with troops and he's he's getting rid of them. He's booting them out in no uncertain terms. Um, but you do tend to find that Cromwell's actions there are, are hailed as the actions of a decisive, strong leader. But actually, when you look at it, it's so much more than what Charles ever did. If Charles did what Cromwell did then, perhaps there wouldn't have been a civil war. Charles just was not ruthless enough to be a monarch, and especially not ruthless enough to be a monarch in that particular political turmoil. Um, I, I want even to ask Cromwell you, struggles. I want to ask you in the end, was Cromwell the villain that history made him out to be, or was it simply trying... But yeah, what's with the villain that history made him out to be? It's a hard one to answer, if I'm honest. Now, because he he's held up as a villain of many degrees. Um, so I don't think he's the ultimate evil villain that is... It's no who, Hitler, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But with Cromwell... A lot of what happened and a lot of what he was involved with, he does behind the scenes. He's a very smooth political operator. He doesn't leave written statements about what he thinks. He purposefully tries to get his minions to, to, to take actions and to take the fallout because as Lord Protector, he can't be seen to be de de divisive. You know, he wants to try and um, he wants to try and maintain his government and really with him at the pinnacle he he gives he's trying to be the man that every faction wants him to be without committing himself too much if if, if you if you get what i mean you know yeah. so he's he outwardly he might be sort of reluctantly doing something 
or he might never write something about what he feels or he might never sign that order. But behind the scenes, you cannot say that some official has the power to order, you know, some of the things that happened at that time. He really keeps in the shadows. You see that through the Civil War, um, you know, at Pride's Purge, when Parliament and the army go in against um, Parliament and arrest hundreds of, of MPs. Cromwell comes to London the day after that's all done. And I don't believe for one minute that Cromwell didn't know about that. I don't believe for one minute that Cromwell wasn't a, a tacit supporter of that. But he keeps out of it. It's almost as if the army's man here needs to be protected because he that there's there's a, a requirement for somebody at the top who's um you know whose loyalty is unquestionable uh, and that's Cromwell and I, and I think you know if you protect him uh you know that your revolution can succeed. I have one last question before I go because one of the nickname yeah. that Charles I had is the White King. How did it come to get that nickname, the White King? Um, so it, I think it stems from, um, there's a couple of things I've heard. One, that he was um, crowned in white. Another, that when he was buried after his execution, that it snowed uh, and covered um the, the scene and the, the pole as it, and the coffin as it was being carried um, with snow, you know, indicating his innocence. Um, but I think they're all, I think that certainly the snow element is uh, fictional. Uh, I don't think that was accurate. So I think it is, I think it is a, a tag that he's picked up um, as the White King. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Before we go, do you have any social media where people can find you if they have any further questions on Charter First or the Civil War or this period of history? And of course, where can people buy your book if they want to read more about Charter First? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I love the period, so I'm more than happy to to talk about it whenever I get the chance. So thanks for, for letting me come on. Um my website is 1642author.com. Uh, Twitter handle is 1642author. Um, the book itself is available in all good bookshops. It's on Amazon, um, Pen and Sword of the Publisher, uh, Charles I's Private Life. Um, and I'm, I'm on Facebook. I've got a podcast that I, that I mm. produce called Cavalier Cast, The Civil War in Words. And that is solely dedicated to every angle of the civil wars, um, just to try and make it more accessible, because it is quite a it can be quite a complex topic um, for a number of different reasons. But it, it is a fascinating one and it's something that is really overshadowed and it's not explored enough. So I, I, I produced the podcast to try and um, take it sort of one section at a time and explore it um, with with various ac experts, you know, archaeologists, historians, authors, museum curators, and, uh, you know, just just have a look at uh, new new findings as well. So, yeah. Uh, thank you any... again for coming on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure. My name is Alan. This thank you. That age. Well, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, 
wherever you can find, find podcasts today. If, if you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of our podcast, and I will try to read it on the podcast if I can see the review. If you are on Spotify, consider writing, giving us five stars. You can give us one as well, but I would prefer five stars, if I'm honest. Please like, share, and subscribe. You can also check out on some other episodes. I'm sure you will find something you will like. They are available every Thursday. My name is Alan. This has been with that ish well. And I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.